2: and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 609 for the week of Sunday, April 6th, 2014. It's not a regular news show, but this is one we think you'll certainly enjoy. And joining us tonight is Mark Raderman. Welcome, Mark. Yeah,
1: you know, I'm not looking forward to this at all.
2: Oh, yes, I am. (laughs) Indeed, we all are. And welcome as well, Gina Herlihy.
0: Hey, I am so glad to have our guest on tonight. Someone that I've been sort of watching his work for a while. and excited to talk to him.
2: Oh, yes, exactly. And um, I'll admit, I didn't know much about him until you told me we were going to be doing this interview. And the more I knew, the more I was really interested, the more excited I got for tonight's interview. Uh, So without any further ado, let's explain who. And so tonight... We will be talking with the executive director and co-founder of a company called explore mars which is a nonprofit created to advance the goal of sending humans to mars within the next two decades with also encouraging the use of stem curriculum in classrooms to instill a desire to pursue space exploration for future generations now this person also has done work with the mars society has done some lobbying and campaigning for space flight in the united states government And uh, he's with us tonight, so please welcome once again Executive Director and Co-Founder of Explore Mars, Chris Carberry. Welcome to Talking Space.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for having
1: me on.
2: Glad to have you on. And um, how about we get Mark to start us off here with the questions?
1: I appreciate it, and it's great to have this opportunity to talk about something that gets so much attention so frequently. And yet, uh, you know, I think this will help us to to build an image of, of what's ahead and what we really hope for in a realistic way. So about ExploreMars.org, Chris, could you tell us more about it, what the mission of your organization is? Um, I, I know there's a lot there, but just get us started, if you would, please.
3: Well, as the title, as the name would imply, our main mission is to get humans to Mars. You know, we uh, do a lot of programming to advance the goal of humans to Mars, but not just humans to Mars, but also robots as well. So we've been, we've been since 2010 when we were founded, you know, we've been doing various programs, policy programming, topical program, topical conferences, STEM education, and we're about to launch a, uh, some innovation challenges as well. So we've been fairly busy over the last few years with a whole range of activities,
2: It seems like there's a lot of parts of the organization, Um, and I know you've got a couple of big things coming up. Gina, you want to go into those maybe?
0: Yeah, so Chris, I'm most interested in the H2M conference or Human to Mars conference that's coming up this April 22nd and 24th in D.C., actually at George Washington University. Could you tell us a little bit about what types of people um, you expect in the audience and some of your highlighted speakers as well? Absolutely, yeah. It's going to be a really
3: good conference, as you mentioned, at George Washington University in just a couple of weeks. And as for people in the audience, a big range of people. While we do tend to have a lot of traditional space community folks, like from um, industry and NASA and academia, we also have a lot of students as well. And particularly this year, because we're opening the first day of the conference free for students and STEM educators. So we we expect at least a couple hundred of uh, a couple hundred students in the audience, as well as probably a number of students at uh, the Naval Academy in Annapolis as well. So we're really excited about that. So it's a, w- a wide-ranging audience, particularly on that first day. Um, some of the speakers, you know, particularly on the first day, we have Buzz Aldrin, uh, uh, Charlie Bolden, the NASA administrator, will be uh, leading off the conference. You know, we have people like Alan Stern, former associate administrator who just launched the Wingo Project. You know, it's been causing quite a stir of naming, naming craters on Mars. and you know, a whole range of other folks as well. So it's going to be a really exciting conference so over three days talking about not only why it's important to explore Mars, but also how we'll do it. You know, do we have the architecture, the plans that could get us there? Is it affordable? Which we will uh, lay out, you know, lay, make it clear that is, it is affordable within current budget projections as long as there are increases in the uh, budget for inflation. And we're going to show how it can affect uh, American competitiveness as well. We have a panel called, well, uh, U.S. Competitiveness is Mars. And it's going to talk about how it's not just important for, you know, science and engineering, but how it really can impact American competitiveness as well.
0: So I know Buzz Aldrin is very pro-Mars, so there's no no question, I'm sure, about what he's going to be speaking about um, in terms of the engineering aspects, I'm sure, that it would take to get to Mars. Um, I've heard Buzz talk about those topics in the past. Charlie Bolden's an interesting one to kick off your conference. NASA's positioned right now to be very pro-commercial space. Do you anticipate that he's going to be speaking about what role NASA's going to play in, in America getting to Mars in the future, or more of a budgetary kind of where are we now? How is he going to frame his, um, his, spe- his talk at the conference?
3: well it's interesting you know we've had him, I've had him speak a number of times at our conferences. Uh, he's certainly you know each time he's been very passionate about sending humans to Mars and so you know I'm not quite sure the angle he's going to be taking this time, but I do know there's been a lot, an awful lot of discussion um, at NASA discussion in Congress and other places and within the space community there has been a growing uh, groundswell of activity, trying to find a way to build a really effective and sustainable pathway that will get people to Mars by the 2030s. So I'm hoping that he will start focusing on that kind of be a perfect kickoff speaker, get the ball moving in the conference, you know, so we can move right on because right after him, we also have, uh, Miles O'Brien from PBS, um, uh, doing a panel called building the future around Mars with, um, Two of the associate administrators of NASA, uh, uh, Bill Gristenmaier and Michael, Michael Gazarek. You know, so, you know, uh, Charlie Bolden can give the general theme and kind of a little more specifics, hopefully, than in the past. Hopefully NASA is ready to start putting more specifics in our plan to go to Mars. Since it has been the, the official policy, Yeah, to go to Mars. We have heard numerous times from um, Charlie Bolden and even the president that Mars is the ultimate goal, uh, the ultimate destination. But we haven't seen too many specifics on how we're actually going to get there. So I'm hoping they'll be able to lay out more specifics. And so, but you know, right after he speaks, as I mentioned, we'll have this uh, small discussion, you know, with two of the associate administrators. So I'm hoping we'll be able to even go into more depth on this topic.
0: Other than the obvious budget issue that NASA has right now, what do you think is the number one challenge right now getting humans to Mars? Do you think it radiation, well, longevity, it, or mission planning? Well, and-
3: longevity, it's it, it stability. You know, it's trying, creating budgetary and policy stability. You know, right now, it's perhaps even more important than the budget. And what budget, of course, is important. But uh, if you can't, Maintain a policy and a sustainable, uh, consistent budget over uh, even just a congressional term, let alone a presidential term, we're not going to be able to get to Mars, at least in the traditional route. Uh, and this was discussed, we did recently back in December, we did a uh, partner with the American Astronautical Society to run the Affording Mars workshop. And basically, we've seen a groundswell of activity of um, support for Mars. And it seemed to be much stronger in the space community. It seemed to be much stronger in Congress as well. So we wanted to bring the stakeholders together um, from industry, NASA, other parts of government, um, congressional representatives, academia. It, first off, asked three questions. First up, do they all do they all agree that Mars should be the overarching goal of um, human spaceflight? They all agreed, and uh, that was good. Uh, Second question, is it feasible to get there by the 2030s? And that took a a little more discussion. You know, they were, you know, this was a generally conservative group, you know, of um, not all engineers, but a large number of them were. So Mm -hmm. it it took a lot more discussion. But in the end, generally, the agreement was it's feasible. But the third question was perhaps the most challenging one, Uh, is it affordable? And it took a while, but looking at all the um, pathways, the architectures that we know of, they reviewed them all. And even this was only two and a half days, so we didn't go deep into the numbers or anything, but basically giving a, an initial viewpoint by looking at all the different options we have now. And there was general agreement this can be affordable. It could be done for roughly Uh, the same amount of budget we're getting now, uh, but with increases, you know, for inflation. But as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest concerns from this group was that sustainability, that consistency of budget and policy, without which we're not going to go to Mars, at least, you know, through governmental uh, mechanisms.
0: If any of our listeners of the show are out there listening and they're in the D.C. area or could make their way to the D.C. area, yet don't work in the space industry, what benefit or why, why would you say to someone, yeah, please come, because I believe you'll get something out of the conference?
3: Well, because I think it'll open their eyes. If they're not from the space community, I think it'll open their eyes. You know, I think there is overwhelming support around the country for this sort of activity, for human spaceflight and actually sending humans to Mars. I know this for a fact because we did a, conducted a poll. We uh, commissioned a poll with Boeing last year. Uh, it was right in the middle of sequestration battles. And so we, but, so we were really nervous with the results were since everybody knew there were budgetary problems. And we asked uh, the people who took the poll, it was done scientifically like a presidential poll would be done, uh, mm-hmm. and the pollsters asked first off what percentage is a better budget using NASA Incorporated? And of course, we've all heard these anecdotal tales of you know how inflated the public's viewpoint is of NASA's budget, and we only gave them between zero and six percent, so we limited ourselves. The average answer was two point five percent, which is more than five times what it actually is. Then we gave them the answer and proceeded to ask questions, and we found we were shocked. Over seventy percent of people, Americans, believe it will land on Mars by the by twenty thirty three. Um, more, when they heard the small percentage NASA's budget is more than 70%, thought we should double NASA's budget as well, which was particularly shocking since we were right in the middle of sequestration battle. So, uh, but kind of a long-winded answer to getting to your question. But I think you know for people who may not be part of the space community coming in, if they have an interest, I think it will open their eyes. It'll they'll come away realizing. This is possible. We can go to Mars. We can afford this. Essentially, we'll be spending roughly the same amount of money on NASA whether we go to Mars or not. So, why don't we? And, you know, they'll also show how it can, the positive impacts it can have on the country and the world. You know, so, you know, they'll also learn other things, particularly on that first day, you know, we have something call a panel called Promoting Mars, talking about how NASA industry and others will, are trying to get this word out to people, why this is important. So I think we designed it to be able to not only be attracted to people in the space community, space professionals, uh, and but, you know, to the general public. And that's why I mentioned we invited students on the first day for free and STEM educators. And we also have, we'll have a webcast, we'll be webcasting it, so we'll have a fairly large online audience. We already have 1,100 schools around the country that have committed to uh, view the webcast. They won't be watching, I'm sure, the whole thing, but they'll be watching chunks of the webcast as well. So that's there'll be a a network of uh, schools and groups around the country and the world that will be watching it.
0: And Chris, is primary function, perhaps, of your role as executive director. I I know how long it takes to put together a conference. Is this um, something that takes all year to plan or when do you, or how much of your time as executive director does this conference take up?
3: It takes a lot of time. You know, it's um, particularly the final three months. You know, it takes, you know, we generally have a year out to plan, but, you know, it's not, doesn't take a huge percentage of my time, you know, in the For instance, like in the summertime prior to it, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when the initial planning is going on, reaching out to sponsors, you know, getting the general programming together and what we're planning to do. But it does, you know, as we get into the fall and particularly, you know, into the new year and that final three-month stretch, it takes up a huge amount of time, so it is one of my primary um, uh, tasks as executive director of the group, but we're growing as well. So we're hoping as we grow, you'll know, we'll be able to kind of build out the organization with more staff. So I'll be able to focus on, I'll always spend a lot of time on the conference, but be able to spend more time on other projects as well, you know, focusing on building the network, but bringing in funds so we can do more and more ambitious projects. Yeah, you know, for instance, not just, Conferences we do. We do, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we policy work actually we're going to be doing in two days, and uh, on the Senate side in one of the committee rooms in the Russell Senate Office Building, we'll be doing a briefing in front of um, uh, mostly congressional staffers and others, talking about that affording Mars report that we came up with. So we'll be briefing, you know, with some fairly high-level folks briefing um, members of Congress there. But we're also about to launch um, some uh, innovation challenges. Uh, we haven't officially announced this one yet, but we're going to do kind of an initial uh, talk about a project we're going to be launching called Exo- ExoLance. And the whole point of ExoLance is to develop and test here on Earth a hardware uh, delivery system, rather, that'll be able to uh, burrow one to five, one to three to five meters below the Martian surface and open up a science package that would test for current life on Mars. There's a growing body of evidence there could be life on Mars. You know, certainly a lot of people think there could have been in the past, but we're, we're kind of interested to see because no, there are no current plans of testing for current life on Mars. And many scientists, particularly people like Dr. Chris McKay at NASA Ames, believes that if we're going to look for current life on Mars, it's not likely to be on the surface, which would be uh, pretty well sterilized. But, you know, but if you get, you know, a couple meters, three or four meters below the surface, we might actually have a chance. So what we're hoping to develop, raise funds for this year and develop are these penetrator probes, basically based on bunker-busting missiles. These are fairly small ones which would, um, you know, would come down ballistically, burrow down, you know, one, two, three meters below the Martian surface and do um, a science experiment that would actually search for life on Mars. So we're hoping to launch, we're planning on launching that very soon. We're going to do the initial announcement of it at H2M and then we'll have some uh, other announcements after that but we're also looking at some other interesting projects as well.
0: Well, it sounds like a terrific event, and we will definitely put the event information in the show notes. I've got a
2: couple of questions, actually, branch- branching off of that whole discussion. Um, with the last one, with the new initiative you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about something that sounds so simple, of like digging a few meters underneath the surface to perform tests and um, possibly figure out if there was or is life on Mars. I, I think that's huge, but... Um, who do you get to do that? Do you get rovers to do that, or humans? You know, what, basically, what is the benefit of having a robotic exploration of Mars versus a manned exploration?
3: <clears throat> well, there are two, uh, perhaps, perhaps three parts to that question. <laughs> yeah, as for, that. as for why, a ro- why we're, we're doing that, why a rover can't do that, none of our rovers get, can dig nearly that deep. You know, uh, you know, you have, they just have these little scoopers that go a few inches down, even the um, lander, the Phoenix lander, a few years ago, which had you know was trying to scoop down to find you know water um, in the polar regions of Mars, which it did very well. Uh, although the retro rockets did just as good a job, um, you know they don't go down too far. Uh, and they talked about various ways of doing this robotically. If you could find a way of drilling down, but still, that is a major engineering feat, and just to get down. For frankly, half a meter meter would be a major engineering feat, and so uh, humans of course could do it rather quickly. I'm always adv- i'm a big advocate of course sending humans there to do it, but if we could do it would be useful to know if there is current life on Mars before we send humans it you know' cause it'll affect it won't stop us from going, but it'll certainly affect how we go about it because we have to be more careful and so <clears throat> So that's why we're proposing this. We can, it can be done uh, from what our initial plans have shown. It can be done um, pretty inexpensively as these things go. It can be lightweight and just not, not – yeah, lightweight and be small. So it would be easy to put you – know, it wouldn't take up a lot of mass on anybody's spaceship, any lander. That's always the biggest obstacle. How much does it weigh? How much space does it take from other things? So that's one of the reasons we're proposing that. And since we don't have any way of getting one to three meters below the surface right now, as for humans, yeah, humans are always going to do it better not, maybe not always, but currently, you know, they do. And for the foreseeable future, humans will do this better than robots. There are places humans can't go, you know, where we have to send robots, but you know, in the end, it will be more efficient to send humans if we want to answer a lot of these big questions, uh, you know, even the people working on the rovers, Stephen Squires, who, you know, is running the spirit and opportunity program, you know, famously was talking about, you know, how just a one human crew could do uh, essentially everything these rovers are doing, you know, over months or years in just a week or two, as you know, you know, when you're, as I was mentioning before, we build a rover or a lander that starts scooping in the dirt. It you know, it's a major engineering feat. It takes a really long time for this farm to go down and just scoop down an inch. Um, or it takes a long time for one of those little drills, you know, from one of the rovers to go into a rock just a few millimeters. Well one human with a shovel, you know, could just put their foot down the shovel and scoop down further than our rovers are able to go it, with just one motion, you know, one human can swing a, you know, swing a hammer and break open a rock. We're not able to break open rocks currently with our rovers unless we're very lucky and, you know, rolls over it and we notice. Um, so it's humans can do this a lot faster a lot more efficiently and of course since we are there to actually analyze it with our own brains and our own ability to move around it's probably going to take humans to answer a lot of the big questions Uh, and we may not be able to find determine whether there's life or has been life on Mars until we send humans but um, it, it is worth trying
2: Okay, yeah, because I know there are a lot of people who are proponents of sending, you know, continually sending rovers. So it's, you know, the simple things like being able to dig a shovel that make a huge difference.
3: Oh, yeah, you know, we can't, yeah, really, you could, you know, with humans there, you could drill down as well. You know, we could bring equipment to drill down many, many, many you know, meters, you know, possibly deep enough to find if one of the big questions is, we're fairly certain there is now, but you know, subsurface liquid water. There's a lot of evidence there is subsurface liquid water, you know, by you know, as shown by those uh is you know, the outpouring of liquid, which we presume is water from those spaces on Mars. And we know, you know, we've learned over the last few years this isn't, you know, something that happened a long time ago. This is currently happened, seems to be seasonal. You know, when they originally saw this back in the nineteen nineties with the Mars Global Surveyor, of course the scientists were excited and they're saying, Oh, this happened in recent recent geological times, you know, maybe two or three million, within the last two or three million years, you know, which is exciting for geologists, but doesn't really get the public excited. But as we've gone around and taken pictures of the planet over and over and over, they've noticed spots, you know, that didn't have an outflow two years ago, but now do. So we know this isn't recent geological history. This is recent human history within the last two or three years. So, uh, there's a lot, a lot going on on Mars, and so the human, you know, having humans there will certainly make it easier for us to understand what is going on, whether there's liquid water, whether there's life on Mars currently or on the past. But to be perfectly honest, you know, it's it's also the only planet that we can actually reach where humans could really live, live off the land with, you know, without you know, probably would still need to, as we develop settlement, uh, still send supplies over time. But over time, there is a possibility that you could um, live off the land completely, start growing crops, you know, within an environment. You know, although the moon is a lot closer, you can't really live off the land on the moon. Everything would have to come to Earth. The main benefit of the moon, and I'm an advocate for going back to the moon if we can as well, but you really can't live off the land there. It's benefit is that it's three days away <laughs> as opposed to six to eight months away with Mars.
2: Actually, that's just what I was about to talk about was jumping off points of, you know, there are people obviously who are proponents of going to the moon first and um, possibly finding fuels or just making it so that it's easier to get there from the moon to Mars. What do you think of taking, a, you know, a step-by-step approach of going to the moon and then to Mars?
3: Well, depends how they do it. I mean, there are some people who have advocated, and I'm going to get my background first off, so I don't want to sound like I'm talking in-depth engineering here. I have a policy background, so history and policy, and that's where I come at this, you know, with a lot of the political work and uh, that sort of activity, but I'm certainly very familiar with the engineering and the science, you know, and I deal with the folks doing it a lot. So, um I would love to be able to go back to the moon, but it has to be done in such a way, of course, that's affordable. You know, I don't want to do it and not be able to go to Mars because we spent all the budget on going to the moon. But we also want to do it as a way, if we're going to go, that it's a true stepping stone. that we're using the moon, you know, to really test hardware and other things that will be useful for going to Mars. It's not, not a perfect analog, of course. There's no atmosphere on the moon, there's different gravity, et cetera. But it has been a long time since we've landed on another planetary body, you know, since we were going to the moon before. So there certainly would be benefit to testing, you know, landers and other technologies before we head off to, to Mars. But you know, if you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, maybe we should start building a base there, and or talk about we could actually start building a launch facility there and then launch to Mars from the moon. But you know, I find that if we if we plan on that, it's going to be a century before we go to Mars. Yeah, There's no question. If we because I can see the moon being an enormous roadblock if we don't do it right. An enormous roadblock to getting us to Mars. So if we can find a way of doing it efficiently, great. But it'll will, it'll to be it will be a stepping stone. Of course, if we do need to start practicing. You know, building the hardware. You know, life support systems. You know, so we probably will have precursor missions, whether it be to the moon, whether it be to an asteroid, an L2 point or somewhere. You know, there are a lot of different options being discussed right now. I think it will take at least one of those, maybe more, but I, we need to build, we need to develop this plan clearly and show how we're, we'll be able to get to Mars by the 2030s early 2030s if possible.
2: So then what about using the ISS as a jumping
3: off point, as a testing point? Well, ISS is really key to this. It's going to be much more important than people would have even realized a few years ago. Um, it really, yeah, there are a lot of things we can do there. I know NASA and others really want to start utilizing ISS as much as they possibly can to start testing, you know, systems and, and doing analog missions and other things to start preparing for going um, to Mars and other places beyond low-Earth orbit. So this is, this is in the thinking of NASA right now. How can we use ISS to advance the goal of getting beyond low-Earth orbit and onto Mars? And so there's a lot of support and a lot of activity planning for that right now. And and, and extending uh, ISS to 2024, you know, helps in that. And so, but perhaps the greatest uh, potential way that ISS could help in this is not even necessarily the technology and the systems, but uh, the international partnership. You know, we talk about how it's difficult to make a long-term human space flight program, and that's true. But we have one right now, even though there are hiccups in how we're getting people up to orbit, and there are international uh, issues right now that are making people nervous about our access to the space station. But regardless of all that, the, uh, the space station wouldn't exist most likely unless it had become an international mission, because we have, you know, uh, you know, over a dozen um, countries participating in this. And this agreement is held together by treaties and strong international agreements. It not, it's not very easy to kill. <laughs> Otherwise, Congress would have tried to kill it. They had tried to kill it, but they would have killed it years ago. But because, it, you know, if we cancel our participation, we, we're also hurting our relationship with our partners. You know, it's made just much more difficult, you know, to get rid of. So it's an interesting model for the future. And we've built this. You know, this unlikely partnership, you know, with Russia, with European, uh, the European um, partners, uh, with Japan and many others. And in many ways, it may we may not be if we let that go, we may not be able to create it again. In many ways, that partnership itself might actually be more difficult in the end than the engineering mission to Mars. You know, because it was not easy to get together. It took years to figure out how to work with each other, to adapt each other's docking and technologies. You know, so if we could harness that, bring this partnership together, and start using it to go beyond Low Earth orbit and onto Mars, that truly could be the greatest legacy of ISS, and it might be, it might be, it might be that magic bullet. You know, to be able to create that long-term program that will be able to get, back, get past, you know, multiple congressional and presidential terms.
1: Chris, talking about the international cooperation, do you think that the partnership that we have today with the ISS players would be sufficient for a human mission to Mars, or would we need something even bigger with, with more international players, or could we get by if it was smaller?
3: I, I think it would be sufficient. I don't. I think it would be great if we could bring in more partners. Of course, but I think as long as we get the commitment, as long as we can really get the commitment from our country and the partners, uh, it, it should be sufficient. And you know, if you have the right combination of the United States, the international partners, as well as commercial players, you know, finding that right balance, find an efficient way, a, a robust way that can do it, you know, without incurring a colossal cost. I think I, I think it certainly could be doable, and I don't think we need to add a large number of international players, but I think we just need to think about how we'll do this differently than we have in the past. We're not going to be recreating the Apollo program. Uh, we have We do have to rethink how we're doing these programs. And I think in many ways nobody is thinking in lines of Apollo anyway these days I think they realize that the budget realities, you know, uh, well, the budget realities that force people to look at these problems differently, uh, more efficiently, finding clever ways of doing things that are not going to be, you know, ridiculously expensive. And, and so in many ways, I think the budgetary problems have helped us have advanced the cause because it forced people to perhaps create the missions The plans for mission they may, they should have developed years ago, but had no incentive to do so because, you know, they always assume there'd be a large, unlimited budget.
0: Chris, are you um, biased to one particular um, mission type to Mars? Do you think that uh, the stay um, on the surface of the planet should be six months, 18 months? I've heard different scenarios about. You know, using sort of this one chance, one shot slingshot from Venus, since gravity back to Earth, or are you a proponent of waiting it out until Earth and Mars are realigned again? What what do you think is the best plan?
3: Oh well, realigned they're aligned well enough every two little over two years, you know. And of course, there are these big windows, like one in 2018 and one in 2033, where you have a really good or um, orbital mechanics. You know and that's what um, inspiration Mars was aiming for at least originally in twenty eighteen and so a lot of people talk about the year twenty thirty three which is another great year for going now I advocate I would prefer that we go the long stay, you know, staying there you know for eighteen months ish or you know and not just you know that short stay, you know which would be a month ish you know however, it depends on how it's planned, you know how much. I've heard some really strong arguments for staying a shorter time, still getting a lot of science done and just starting the process moving, you know, at least for that first mission. So I generally I'm for a longer stay. I think you're going to get a lot more done. I think it would be, you know, better value for your money. But, you know, I could certainly, I could certainly listen to a lot of arguments for a shorter stay as long as, as long as we weren't going there just to plant a flag, say we've been there, and then fly back to Earth. We need to be able, to, if we're going to go, we want, need to go to obviously get some serious science done, really explore, but also get, do some serious work to establish a long-term present, human presence on Mars. This can't be just a one-off mission. We need to be able to create a presence on Mars that's going to last years or longer.
1: I've got another question for you, Chris. Uh, something as ambitious as this, it, it strikes me as being another level of magnitude greater than anything we've tried before. It, it seems like it's going to take some real cooperation, but just thinking about starting at home, do you have any ideas on how we can get the scientists, the politicians, and the general public? Because they all have opinions about this. They, We, we hear from different these different components from time to time, but how do you get them to all pull together instead of it being like a random, uh, one goes in one direction and the other goes in an opposite direction and, and, and you don't get any forward mo- movement sometimes. How do you get them to work together?
3: Well, one of the things we've been doing, and this has been part of the, uh, you know, one of the reasons we did this Affording Mars workshop and one of the reasons for these uh, Humans to Mars assignments as well, is to try to start building consensus. Um, There there are other ways to inspire people. You know, if we have, find some great leadership in government, you know, that's, you know, know, can inspire people, that's great. But assuming we don't,
0: uh, you know,
3: we're assuming we're probably not going to have a JFK-like speech. So what we're trying to do is kind of, Use that groundswell that we noticed last year and the reason why we did Affording Mars and try to build support, uh, build uh, coalitions, and see if we can build this critical mass over time. Whereas we can actually, uh, whereas we actually have that political support, we really can start the process moving, but hopefully we can actually sustain it over time. It's going to take, of course, in this country, bipartisan support. Over many years to do it, and that's that is a real challenge once again that is more of a cha- far more of a challenge I believe from my non engineering perspective, but I believe it's a, a greater challenge than the engineering and the science of going to Mars. keeping building the political coalition and keeping it together over many years is going to be a herculean task. I think it's achievable and particularly once we start showing the public that things are happening, if we can get to an early early precursor destination and show, yes, we can do this, the United States and our partners are still capable of doing great things, I I think it's really going to capture the public imagination. But once you start that moving, I think that's when we might be able to maintain this political support. Until we start doing it, it's just so much more easy for opponents to attack it. You know, if we look like we're just spending money, not getting anything done, it's, it, it makes it much easier to attack. So, um, so right now we're quietly, and sometimes not quietly, trying to build uh, this coalition of people in the industry and beyond the space community as well to uh, hopefully build the support we need to get this thing moving and hopefully do it over a long period of time. One challenge that I've
2: noticed is that I'm also a STEM educator. Uh, One thing I've noticed is that it's kind of hard to convince kids to, you know, want to still be astronauts and, you know, do the whole Buck Rogers thing when there's no shuttle flights, when there's no definitive plan to go to Mars. So uh, what is Explore Mars doing to try and get kids excited?
3: Well, we have a number of programs. We're going to launch some more. But one of the things we're doing, you know, in addition to inviting them to our conference free, we run these, particularly STEM educators, because we think that right now we work with STEM educators because they can reach a lot of students, more students than we can reach. We run um, a few times a year the uh, Teaching Mars Workshop, where we bring STEM educators and space professionals together to brainstorm how to integrate Mars into the classroom, show, you know, it can be worked into every scientific discipline fairly easily, show them how they can do it without, you know, disrupting their teaching for the test or anything. You can work it into biology, into chemistry, into geology, into everything else, you know, uh, but without, you know, without introducing different curricula, using it as an example. But So engaging the students, showing that this is exciting, but while doing it, we're doing things to show that, you know, yes, the shuttle has been canceled, but we have real solid plans. We're building, we have a lot of spaceships right now in development, and lots of rockets commercially, but, you know, with industry. So there, there are an awful lot of exciting plans right now, and we just need to start, we just need to get a little more focus, you know, and we can achieve this goal. So I don't, you know, I've seen a lot of excitement from kids and students lately, so I think it's out there. We just need to show them it's real. I don't think there's any shortage of support for it and won't be any shortage of um, excitement from uh, kids, from students, as long as we can show them this isn't just a PowerPoint presentation. Once we show them it's real, uh, I guarantee it's going to really inspire uh, and excite the public and students uh, and the world, frankly. So, you know, another thing we're working on where, you know, there's – We've also been working with NASA and Lockheed on the uh, um, Exploration Design Challenge, uh, which challenges kids to um, design certain missions. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of STEM activity. we we actually when we were first founded, we did a couple of years doing one goal in Mars. Education Mars education challenge. Yes, you know, challenging um, once again STEM educators to come up with innovative ways of integrating Mars into the classroom. So we've been doing a lot of activity, but we're hoping to do you know as we are, as we grow, uh, get more and more ambitious in our STEM activities as well. But I as long as we can show them it's real, I think kids will get excited, and adults will get excited as well.
2: Yeah, because I was um, checking out your guys website and you have quite a few things. One that I saw that was interesting in terms of actually, you know, being able to physically get involved with it uh, was the Time Capsule to Mars, which is a basically a student-led mission involving little CubeSats. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: Yes, we've been working with this group. Um, you know, actually this concept was uh, founded, conceived of rather, at our conference last year at the Humans Mars Summit in 2013. Um, um, they came up with this idea of how could we, would it be possible to land a small payload, small payload on Mars, or much less than it's done before? And they came up with this over time, working with various, uh, talking to various companies, but then uh, working with a team at MIT, they did a month a long study. They found a way of sending a cube sent to Mars, or actually we want to send several, so you have um, redundancy that will also contain a small. Time capsule, which will be a, a small cylinder, but inside it will have data, and people will be able to upload selfies, you know, messages, things like that, and it'll land, be able to land on the Martian surface. This will be a student run project, uh, you know, with a network of colleges around the country, uh, which, which is really impressive a group of students doing this and helping to do this, some, I believe, in 2018. So we, we've been advising them and helping them with this, and we'll be more and more engaged in helping them achieve this mission. But it's really exciting. It it not only uh, covers our goal to do innovation challenges, you know, ambitious missions ourselves, but it certainly also involves STEM education, working with students, getting them really active in inspiring, you know, projects. And this certainly is because, you know, obviously it would probably be the first private mission to Mars. It would be certainly the first student mission to Mars. It'll also, if successful, test out a lot of new technologies as well. And I I don't recall, you know, the the amount of money it would take to do it would be far, far, far less than uh, previous missions to Mars.
1: Chris, could you comment about something that I've been aware of here from time to time over the last few years, some of them I'm going to call it a Mars analog mission, uh, where they simulate a anything from a a few week period of time and longer to having having personnel kind of go through the motions of the communications the actual work the uh precautions the environment that they would encounter on Mars. Could you comment about these Mars analog type projects?
3: Yeah, there are a number of them around the. Like- World, And we're actually even having a panel on Mars analogs at our conference. But uh, there are, you know, of course, uh, groups like the Mars Society, uh, which I actually used to be the executive director of that group also, uh, has two analog bases, one in the Utah desert called the Mars Desert Research Station. They have one up in the Arctic called Flashline Mars Arctic Research Station. They've done this for years, simulating Mars uh, missions. You know, doing various aspects of it in spacesuits and doing the science, et cetera. You have other missions, the other groups you know, there's some uh, quite a it's quite a bit of activity in Hawaii, also up in the Arctic same island that the Mars um, Society wanted is the Houghton Mars Project, um, which they have been doing an awful lot of activity for years, you know, doing you know analogs and doing simulated Mars science up there. Uh, so, And there are a number of other groups doing this right now. There's really a lot of interest in this because I think everybody is conceding that this Mars is the destination people want to go to. But one of the things I'm a big advocate right now, of, since we are talking about using ISS as much as possible, is to do a full analog with ISS, meaning send our astronauts up there for you know six to eight months to, uh, to simulate an actual mission to Mars. But don't end it there. You know, we know we know that microgravity is bad. <laughs> we know that it affects musculature and bone mass. So, uh, you know, and they come, usually they come back to Earth and, you know, they have a whole, you know, uh, they have doctors and other people looking at them the moment they come off and they have assistants coming off if they need it. Well, if we're going to go to, if we're going to, go to Mars, we they're not going to have, you know, a whole staff uh doctors are waiting for them. So we need to see, see if they can do basic tasks. They're going to land on the Martian surface because the first probably the first few weeks are going to be uh, extremely active, getting everything ready. So I'm an advocate for having them go up and do a six-to-eight-month mission, but then come down to Earth and go to a simulated, you know, analog Mars space and show, can they actually do these tasks? then are they going to have trouble adapting to the gravity? Even though, there, of course, there is more gravity here, you know, you know it's less challenging in other, other respects. So it, I, I think it would be worthwhile doing that and having them come back to do a, you know, to a simulated base here on Earth and just work through the mission that way. You know, if they have real problems adjusting, then we have to figure out, you know, how to adjust going to Mars. But the key thing is, and I know a number of astronauts who don't think it'll be a problem as long as people, as the astronauts, stick to their exercise regimens and other things that they do. Uh, Plenty of astronauts now come back after months, you know, are able to walk off with very little problems.
1: That is an excellent uh thought. i it's never occurred to me before that there could be a problem going from a, a long duration flight to, to being on Mars and having that readjustment to gravity. That's an excellent oh, thing. Yeah. Well, it has have... to be figured out.
3: Oh yeah, that's one of the main problems. You know, people talk about the radiation issues and once again I'm not a scientist, I'm not a m I'm not a physician. So I don't I don't want to go too in depth on that since <laughs> it quickly run out of my my, um, my knowledge on it. But, you know, from what I've heard, that's not necessarily unless there's an unusual, you know, a rare occurrence, unless this bad timing with a solar event, which would be really bad. Um, it, you know, and that's why it'd be good to go, go to Mars, you know, when you have a so, solar minimum period where there, there isn't as much activity. But that aside, the main issue is probably going to be that... Um, the physical impact, uh, separate from the radiation, the um, yeah, the, the fact that your bone mass is degraded, your musculature has has uh, broken down a little bit, and that includes your heart as well. But as long as you really keep up, you know, intense exercise each day, it, it should be good enough. And you know, they said uh, I know a number of astronauts who have done that and have shown that you can really come if you really keep up the exercise regimen and keep take care of yourself when you're up there, you know, you can come off in pretty good shape.
1: It occurs to me maybe we'll learn a little bit more in that direction with the one-year duration flight by uh, American astronaut Scott Kelly, and I, I forget the Russian astronaut's name, but uh, with their year in orbit that they expect to, uh, to start soon.
3: Yep, and that's one of the reasons we're doing it. It's, you know, they're doing that, of course, to uh, start preparing for going beyond low-earth orbit. So that really is one of the main objectives, the main reasons for doing the year-long stay.
2: So obviously your organization has a lot going on. Let's say that all of these conferences and all of these groups and things all come together. Where do you see humanity in relation to space flight and space travel in 100 years?
3: Hundred years, well, wow. <laughs> good question. Yeah, you know, well, hopefully in a hundred years we have a you know major settlement at least on Mars, colony, you know, at least a colony on Mars. You know, hundred years out, it would be very disappointing if we were not able to have major settlements on Mars. You know, major infrastructure around, you know, in space, on the moon, et cetera. You know, that at minimum. But I hope once we start moving, you know, we, we are able to build the knowledge infrastructure, uh, infrastructure, but also the need to, to solve the problem of uh, propulsion. You know, right now we can, you know, Mars is as far as we're going to send humans for the foreseeable future. It's just, you know, we can't send, you know, even if we use artificial gravity, it's going to it's a long trip to Jupiter, it's a long trip to Saturn, and it's an impossible trip to the nearest star. And so we, we really want to start exploring the solar system, and, you know, who knows, you know, if we ever want to send humans or even robots to other stars, we're going to have to figure out how to go a lot faster. Who knows to go as fast as the speed of light? I don't know, but you, you need to start approaching that to really start, you know, to go to another star. And we need to go a lot faster to get to Jupiter or Saturn within a reasonable time frame. But hopefully within 100 years, we will have at least been able to find a way to get, you know, to explore the, explore the solar system sufficiently um, to get humans to places, you know, around Jupiter or Saturn to look at the moons of both of those planets and at least be able to send robots to the nearest stars to take a look. I, I think that's fairly realistic, you know, and, you know, if, I hope it's actually even more impressive than that, but, you know, realistically, I, at minimum, that we've settled settled the inner solar system, settled Mars, have lots of infrastructure, people are going to space all the time, and we're, we've figured out a lot of propulsion issues and other issues in space. So,
2: this last question is one that we ask of all of our guests, and I like to call it the most difficult question. Are you ready? Okay. If people want to find out more about you and Explore Mars, where can they go?
3: They can go to our website, ExploreMars.org, or they can come to our Humans to Mars Summit in Washington, D.C. in two weeks. Yeah, either or. You can find out a lot of information on ExploreMars.org, but uh, it'll be, our website's fine, but it'll be far more inspiring to come to Washington, D.C. on April 22nd through 24th.
2: the humans to Mars summit great um well then uh thank you very much for coming on and joining us here on talking space
3: well thanks for having me on it was a lot of fun
2: once again a big thank you to chris carberry of explore mars and thank you to the team of talking space who joined me tonight thank you for joining us mark ratterman
1: another great show from a phenomenal guest i really appreciate his sharing, his time, and especially that expertise that we got such a good uh, time with here.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I We all talk about Mars and about getting there. It's nice to see people actually trying to do something about it. And thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I'm just um, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to talk to someone as passionate as Chris about the opportunity to get to Mars.
2: Exactly. And hopefully, like their goal within the next few decades, We'll be on Mars. Well, in the meantime, let's get towards the next episode, which we hope you will join us for. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.